Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. If you would like to hear episodes of this show you may have missed, please go to RadioPetLady.com and visit the podcast library. You can also listen to all the Pet Talk radio shows I co-host with pet experts, including Cat Chat, The Pet Cancer Vet, Good Dogs, The Expert Vet, Exotic Pets, Holistic Vets, Pet Food Advisors, Humane Talk, and Authors on Animals. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Precious Cat Litter, and Waruva, a privately owned pet food company named after the owner's rescued cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Their brands are Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen in Pouches, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brand, created for finicky felines and fussy little dogs. All their cans and pouches are made in a human food facility, which means that every ingredient is good enough for people to eat, if your kitty will share. I am here with a wonderful group of people, each of whom has something very special to offer us. One of them is someone I'm dying to meet and pick his brain. Wayne Cavanaugh is the head of the United Kennel Club and used to be very involved with the AKC, the American Kennel Club, and knows a lot about Crufts and knows a lot about dog breeding and dog shows and the good, the bad, and the ugly, as they say. Dr. Alice Villalobos will join us after that, our wonderful oncologist whose specialty has become end-of-life decisions for dogs and cats and how to know when the end has come and how to give pospice, which is her word for hospice for pets. And then Companions for uh, Independence instructor Becky Miller, is going, Canine Companions for Independence, is going to tell us what instruction they do with puppies after they've been raised by puppy rearers. I mostly want to know why do they throw out, if you will, more than half the dogs that everyone went to all this trouble breeding and raising? There's something wrong with the formula, but maybe there's an answer to the whole thing. I'm going to start right out by saying hi to Wayne Cavanaugh. So pleased to meet you, Wayne. Hello, Tracy. It's nice to meet you as well. I don't know if you walk a kind of tightrope because the AKC is probably the best known registry for purebred um, dogs as well as the, the, the power behind the scenes in, in many dog shows. But the United Kennel Club is sort of, I guess you would say, an answer to the AKC, looking at dogs, dog breeding, dog showing from another perspective. Is, is that the way that you describe yourself in your elevator speech? Yes, I think that's it. You know, we don't really see ourselves as direct competition. Um, we would like to think that all dog people could work together. Um, but we see ourselves as different, um, a different approach to dogs. And when it was established, the UKC, in 1898, even the founder uh, saw it as a response to the AKC in a, a manner that produced and promoted more working dogs and more, I guess, you know, the everyman's dog, the around-the-farm dog. Um, they could do things. And we've changed um, with that in mind to what we think is a very progressive registry where we really encourage people to not just breed for looks. We want Which- to breed... For, for functionality and for health of the dogs too, right? I mean, yeah. one of the ways that, that I was able to get in touch with you is that I had the wonderful investigative journalist Michelle Hollow, who has a, as you know her well, has a, yeah. a column on Parade.com and, and writes a lot for Who, What, Why and does a great, great job. And she was 
when she came on Dog Talk, we, we discussed her, her excellent piece on the degradation of the German Shepherd dog from a very strong, sturdy, long-lived, very functional animal to one that can barely walk. There's something The dog you now see in, in AKC shows looks like, like he's been crippled in some way or had a stroke or there's something terribly wrong. And you look at it and your logical mind says, what's wrong with this? This picture, and we say it about the. I think also the English bulldog. We say it about the Pekingese, the one who won the uh, the the Westminster Dog Show not so many years ago. That looked unable to breathe and barely able to move forward, actually. And I know that there was big controversy in England, where the BBC would no longer televise the Crufts, which is a much grander, greater, and older dog show than any of ours, because England's older and greater and grander, and they refused to to televise it anymore. Can you talk a little bit about what this trend is towards public awareness, or perhaps lack of awareness, of what is happening in dog breeding, and how in the end it harms the animals? And your knowledge of Crufts is a great deal more than mine. Mine is just over the transom to know that Crufts got dissed by the BBC, and that's pretty. That's that's a big deal, right? Yes, and that's a story into itself. I think the what's going on in my mind is uh, these breeds are just getting exaggerated in such small increments that we don't even realize it. It's such a profound example of growth gradualism, that over time, these breeds have changed generation by generation to be a little more exaggerated, a little more special looking so they can win in the show ring. And when they, when you do that, you sacrifice too much, for my, in my opinion, for confirmation. Pekingese used to have muzzles, and they used to be great Pekingese. They would win Westminster. Um, they would win the big shows, even with a muzzle. Today, uh, unless you had much flatter face Pekingese, you wouldn't be in the competition. So, and these are good people breeding these, well-intended people. They just can't see the forest for their trees. It's happened, as I said, so gradually. Um, but nevertheless, it is, in my opinion, frightening and alarming. Um, the good news is that I think public awareness is starting to catch on. Um, this is certainly not to cast aspersions on purebred dogs. No, far from it. Of, far from you know, it. I mean, most people, many people have them or refer to the even the mixed breed they dog they have as half this, half that. I mean, it's always right. a reference to a purebred for the most part. Yeah. But what she's trying to say is, you know, at the end of Kennel Club, what we want dogs to do is if you come to Premier and you want to go in the show ring, in our best in show ring, in our group ring, our total dog ring, that's great. First, that weekend... You have to qualify right there in agility, obedience, dock jumping, carrier racing, lower coursing, weight pull, any of our competitive events that would test the physical ability, the function, and the health of that dog in a common sense way before it goes in the show ring. So those dogs don't show up that are very exaggerated. They can't compete at that level. So that's pretty interesting. So saying... let's, say, let's say I have a Pekingese, right? Now, Pekingese is never going to dock dive. That'd be hilarious. This was never right. intended. I mean, the great royalty of China... I forget their exact story, but I mean, I think they were a foot warmer, a hand warmer. I mean, they were meant right. to be inside the, the sleeves of your, of your kimono to keep your hands warm. And lots yes. of the small breeds had that kind of a snuggle up with me, keep my toes warm, keep my heart warm. But they could also breathe and trot around and procreate. So if I had that Pekingese that I wanted to bring to one of your shows, I'd have to compete in something else, be it agility or obedience. In other words, the dog had to be able to do something other than be fluffed and and fluffed and fluffed and then stood on a cooling 
I guess the big issue was the dog was so boiling hot because of that exaggerated coat also that the dog was just like boiling to death, so to speak, and had to be cooled off just to be alive, right? Yeah, it's not just that dog. I mean, Pekingese are routinely shown on those ice packs now, which is, you know, it's insane. Uh, it just Thank happened you. and no one questioned it. And in my opinion, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I used to do that. I showed those dogs. I judged those dogs. And um, um, you get to the point where you have to step back and take a look at the perspective and look and say, wait a second. You know, I'm not a Pekingese expert. I never judge specifically Pekingese um, at that level dog show anyway. Um, but I can see that, my goodness, there's something wrong here. And this is not to pick on Pekingese. This is happening. No, of course not. We have exaggerations sure. in every breed, um, some of which I think make them dysfunctional. Some don't. They just make them look goofy. Uh, but, but the Pekingese in, that you're talking about, would it, even in obedience, it's going to have to jump over a hurdle. It's going to have to do things in that ring. It's going to have to have legs and a little longer muzzle. Um, yes, it can't duck jump, but there's something for every breed to do. And uh, we've had the, a toy poodle one weight pull a few years ago. Oh, um, my God. The, Explain what weight pull is because most of us only, if we guessed what it would be, would think, well, maybe maybe an English Mastiff could do that or maybe a St. Bernard. So expl- Or they've seen it. Well, I live in Vermont now, so some things seem normal like that. You know, they, they have actual <laughs> tractors that pull weights because, God forbid, you should have a live animal like you're supposed to. Right. But, but do the dogs <laughs> actually pull a weight commensurate with their own weight with a little harness on and a little track or what? Yes, they, that's exactly oh, what they do. And, and there are other places that do it differently the way we do it, though. Because I think piling on eighteen thousand pounds or whatever it is, you know, for me, I don't, I don't see that. Buy a motorcycle, right? Get a motorcycle. As humane, yeah, it's not for me. Um, but what we like to see is uh, a multiple of weight. So if that toy poodle at ten pounds can pull a hundred pounds, uh, he's going to beat the mastiff, uh, the hundred fifty pound, two hundred pound mastiff that pulls three thousand pounds. Uh, I mean, it pulls, you know, two hundred. So in other words, you pull a multiple of your own weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And it's no harm to the animal because obviously someone's figured out that you don't want to blow out their joints or their spine or their heart or something, right? Yeah, and there's no real need to pile up the weight when you're just looking for a multiple. Um, and if it does get to that point, um, you know, we're going to blow the whistle. Well, but if somebody hasn't. has a 10-pound toy poodle and would love to try this, where do you go practice to the point where a 10-pound poodle can safely, humanely, and have fun pulling 100 pounds? Where, how do you learn well, you to can, do that? You can find the, you know, you can find weight pool clubs online and try. And some of them are going to invite you with a toy poodle. Some of them are not. Some of I them see. are going to want just the bad dogs, the big dogs. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> pulling. I was going to say something else. Uh, the, the large dogs that pull. The kick-ass dogs. Weight. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. Right. But <laughs> the, these are uh, such fun things that are that are part of the UKC show. The other thing that was surprising to me when I was reading up on your life history, which is truly extraordinary. I mean, you've you've run the gamut from so many amazing parts of the dog world. Uh, really impressive. Uh, the UKC being established in 1898, the kind of common myth that I picked up, even in research in the dog Bible, was that, oh, that was just an upstart, that UKC and all these other registries. They were all like much lower and not of quality like the AKC. They were like upstarts that were just getting in our way. 1898 is kind of like an impressive heritage. There is a history, and it had a meaning. It wasn't just another dog show. 
registry. Yes, it's it's not going to get sequins and spotlights and television because, you know, <laughs> doing some of the things that we do isn't quite as extravagant and American. You know, we're talking about hunting dogs, coon hunting at night, you don't think, you know, oh, live see, game cake. And, oh, wow. You don't think people yeah. would rather see a toy poodle pull 100 pounds or a Weimar on her dock dive or, I don't know, a beagle do something than than just see dogs go round in a circle when the rest of us, even though you are a breed judge and you're very, you know, you have a long history of judging, we can't tell the difference between one Labrador retriever and another, or the <laughs> difference between a Labrador, an English setter, an Irish setter, and oh my God, why is one better than the other? It's also subjective and kind of feels like a magic secret pact. So why yeah, would we, would, we, we would think the viewers would be far more interested in yeah. seeing dogs do stuff. As, yeah, so. as one of our slogans is our dogs do stuff. Um, uh, but, you know, sensational sequins and spotlights works very well in America. We are getting more television exposure, um, especially the dock jumping, which has been a huge hit. Um, and, you know, we're, and by the way, we have bulldogs that dock jump, you know. We have all German shepherds that dock jump, good ones. And there are plenty out there. But if Americans keep demanding exaggeration as pets, bulldogs are a good example. Everyone wants these real big, large-headed, smash-faced bulldogs. Well, the breeders are going to keep making them. And if they win, that's going to keep going as well. But the public, when they're looking for a pet, needs to be a little more aware and say, wait a second, we want something more functional. We're looking for something with a little more muscle, a little more leg. And in general, check to see if the breeder, first of all, meet the mother, right. uh, take care of so many ills in this world of yes. dog buying. Um, if, if you met the mother, first of all, you wouldn't be going to a puppy mill. You wouldn't be going to an internet breeder, right. seeing where the dog was born. But look at the, and see the function of the mom. And maybe you'll see some siblings in the sire as well. And if you look in the pedigree and you see performance titles, hunting titles, obedience titles, uh, agility titles, then you'll see maybe this, this person is aiming for a more well-rounded dog. And again, not to cast aspersions to anyone breeding for just confirmation. It's just that in our world, we're looking at something different. Well, here's here's a, a strange thing that happened to me. There's a beautiful um, dog show at the in Long, Long Island at the Arboretum. I think it's yeah. called the Ladies Something. It's been around. Ladies Kennel Club. Yeah, mm-hmm. so cool, beautiful spot. Yes. And the AKC was running it and had a table there, and um, they were absolutely frothy, frothy because I had some bookmarks that. Um, said the Humane Society of the United States in tiny oh, type at the bottom because they were bookmarks that were that said teach kids to read dogs. It was about how to it came from my book, The Dog Bible, how to prevent dog bites to children so children could read dog body language. And they, they were just so upset. And I and I was new to the whole thing, didn't know all this controversy, as the Brits would say. And so I said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. What is all this anger about? Well, they're against tail cropping and t- and tail and ear docking. I'm like, and so since it's illegal, I knew that it was illegal in England. I said, well, it's illegal in England to cut off the ears and the tail. Why do we in America still do it? And she looked at me like I was so stupid. And she said, because that's what the breed standard describes. Now, I know that there's no photos in the breed standards. It's only words written in English. And I said, well, couldn't you just change it to say, the ears would be floppy instead of, you know, like I think of Doberman pinchers and what those poor dogs go through right. to have their ears cut and taped with popsicle sticks and infection and blood and months where their heads are in this contraption that's really torturous. But I didn't say that to her. And I said, well, what would the harm be? You could just change what the description is. And she said, 
we wouldn't know what the dog would look like if it had a tail. It can't have a tail because it says it doesn't have a tail. Well, we know in Europe. Uh, I've judged them in Europe, and you simply, you know, the first time I, I asked, was it a, uh, asked a judge of that breed, what do I do about looking at these uncropped ears? He said, you crop them yourself. In other words, you take them by the hand, you lift them up. If it's that big of a oh, deal for you, just do that. And I, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that, but you certainly can. But the United States is the only place in the world where we crop and dock. The rest yeah, of the world, it's illegal in the rest of the world. It's mutilation of important yep. body parts. They're actually functional body parts with a lot of sensory information, visual information. Yeah, it's disturbing. Well, I hear strange arguments. I hear the argument, well... It helps ear circulation. That's why we oh, want please. to go into Europe. Or, or they say that the, well, the, then we better the hunting the dog can't have a, a yeah can't have a tail because it might get like caught up in the brush. And then you think, well, wait a minute. The Irish Setter and the English Setter have lots of tail with hair on it. So does the Golden Retriever. I mean, so, so does the Labrador Retriever. How come some get their tail chopped and the others don't? I mean, you know, either yes. be consistent or inconsistent. It's a matter of getting hung up on this whole breed standard thing and. Um, in the Holy Grail, not being able to change them. I think, you know, these things have to evolve. The founders of these breeds did not picture these dogs to look like they do today. To think how, how pompous for me or anyone to look at a breed standard and say, this dog in, in today that I'm seeing in the ring is a perfect example of a Springer Spaniel um, because he matches my interpretation of the breed standard. Well, is my interpretation the same as it was 80 years ago? A hundred years ago, when these breeds were being formed, that that those founders of the breed who wrote the breed standard, is this what they had in mind? This Pekingese, this Boxer, uh, this German Shepherd, this Irish Setter, is that what they had in mind? I don't think so. And for us to interpret the standard in that manner uh, seems to be a real reach. And, and, and I don't have any problem clarifying those standards by changing a few words just to remind us to not be exaggerated. I mean, it's not like changing the Declaration of Independence. That's sort of, or the Bible. I know, let's rewrite the Bible. I got a better idea. Or the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> ah, you know what? There's a clearer way to say it. Or let's just add a few things. Anyway, we've run out of time, Wayne, but I have to say, I want the United Kennel Club on television. I totally want to <laughs> report on it. I want to see it. I want to see real dogs for real people, which is one of your slogans, doing real things and inspire the rest of us to get off our butts and do something with our dogs, whatever they yeah. look like, whatever they're made up of, whatever their body parts are. It's really the idea that you just sit, the, stand them up on a little table or trot them the distance of here to there and throw some liver for them. That really isn't a life for anybody, not for the dogs, not for the people. It's sort of nonsensical. And I love that the UKC has been around for a long, long time, and I hope you'll continue to be around for a long, long time. And maybe we modern people can catch up with your much more modern and logical and humane ideas about how dogs need to share our lives, right? Well, thanks, Trace. Yes, I believe so. I know and to some, my ideas sound revolutionary and and out of this world, but to the common, normal American, it all just makes sense. So yes. We and just move forward. That's right. That's right. We want dogs that do stuff with us and feel comfortable doing it. So thanks for the hard work you do. I know you've got slings and arrows coming from the traditionalists who are scared of change, but, you know, change is inevitable and always the most threatening thing in, in any sphere. So we just have to forge ahead. And I would say on behalf of the dogs of America, thank you very much for trying to keep them breathing and walking and trotting and even reproducing on their own if they're going to reproduce, right? 
It would be nice. Have a great day, Wayne. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Tracy. Take care. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this quick word with Dr. Alice, and we're going to talk about end-of-life decisions. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in their oils. Support for Dog Talk also comes from Precious Cat Litter, created by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who wanted litters that would appeal to kitties naturally and protect their health and are all low dust for the health of all members of the family. Their newest litter is Touch of the Outdoors, made with field grasses that provide environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entice them into the litter box with the natural scent of the outdoors. You are listening to Dog Talk on Peconic Public Broadcasting. I am back with Dr. Alice Villalobos, our much-beloved oncologist of the show, who's also very much of a philosopher and for many years has been at the forefront of an idea about decisions about the end of your pet's life and how to know the quality of your pet's life as they get older and their health is waning. Dr. Alice, great to have you back again. Thank you, Tracy. I know you go all over the world to do many veterinary type things. And in the meantime, you ski and you jump out of airplanes and go down rivers <laughs> with alligators. I mean, you're great. You, you, you uh, knit together your, your brilliant ideas about pets and your great enthusiasm about the world. And somehow I think they go together. And a quality of life to you as a human is really important. You live an extremely full life. Tell a little bit in your view of how feelings that people have about the end of their pets' lives and the fact that we have this very lucky ability to give what you've always called the gift of euthanasia, how people may be a little confused about quality of life where pets are concerned. Well, Tracy, that's a very good uh, question. Um, And, you know, to explain this to family members who have dogs, cats, and animals that are diagnosed with a life-limiting disease, You know, the human-animal bond is a very strong relationship, and it seems to be even stronger when it becomes threatened with disease or the threat of losing that pet. And um, the bond doesn't disappear. You know, people don't just cut and run. Um, When death is coming or a disease that is going to cause the death of the pet, strong emotional and physical reactions come up and... uh, uh, many times people feel that they, um, um, they're they not normal, but it is healthy and normal to grieve, uh, yes. even when the pet is alive. But the feelings yes. that, that we have of the grief and the pain and the shock and the anxiety and the guilt, um, these are things, you know, did I feed him too much? Did I give him too much peanut butter? You know, right, people wonder. Right. Even if you get diagnosed with cancer yourself, you wonder, oh, you know, did I... Was did it I the latest potato chips? If only what? I didn't have that extra bag. <laughs> These reactions can be overwhelming, and that's why having um, end-of-life care specialists, you know, people who understand the group dynamics of families, children, friends, it's important during this time at end of life. And quality of life is something that everybody wants, but they're kind of many times in human medicine especially, they've been sort of punished or or dismissed because they want to have a quality of life. And that's part of the grieving uh, because we feel that our quality of life is going to be gone, and uh, you know it's a unique feeling for each individual 
person for themselves and for their pets, but um, we have to find a personal way to acknowledge that we we want to have the the quality of life to be important and in the treatment process. And and I I'm trying to help people take the necessary steps to communicate with their doctors, family members, etc. And uh, you know helping to improve the quality of life for companion animals at the end of life is is my passion, and I feel that I can help people advocate for that and and select treatments that are kinder and gentler for those patients that are older and compromised because they have other issues like, you know, diabetes, heart failure, obesity, uh, chronic pancreatitis, Cushing's, hypothyroidism, you know, any other or disease. Or extreme arthritis. We're getting up and Severe like that arthritis, distorted. yeah. And that, that yeah. comes with the old age of almost every dog and many cats. So Since true. Since you first began to talk about this and you talked about your HMM scale, H-M-M-M-M-M-M, and POSPIS, which was your word for hospice, there are throughout the country, across the country, a number of organizations that have come up where they will make house calls and they'll help you evaluate. And in some cases, they want to encourage you to let your pet live a little longer with a quality of life, not go, oh my God, he's suffering, I better pull the plug right now, which for my personality is what I always go towards. And there are other people who let an animal lie in his own pee He'll still wag maybe and maybe eat something, but it, the animal is, you know, to my mind, suffering and in, and has does not have dignity, and they don't want to let go. So there are two ends of the spectrum, but you give people an actual tool, a way to figure out on the issues of how much mobility they have, how much they're doing in their day. I mean, I think we've come to the point to think a cat that just does nothing but sleep 23 and a quarter hours a day that somehow that cat is still having a life. Now, what is your thought on that? Well, I, I feel the same way about you know humans as I do animals. That uh, life is is you know should be worth living. If we're going to live, that life should be somehow having some happiness, yes, and some joy, and there should be something where we uh, have a two way exchange of the love relationships that the human animal bond is. And uh, I want you to, to know that the concept of hospice is really embraces not only hospice, which is at the end of life when we are dying, but also it embraces, um, you know, the patient when the patient is just diagnosed with a life-limiting disease and the patient may still be very healthy. I see. But the idea is that the family knows, oh, this is the disease that's going to get them. Right. And like, you know, supposing kidney failure or heart failure or in my specialty area, cancer, uh, this is the disease that will most likely uh, cause the death of this pet. And and we, we try to make sure that the treatment for the disease does not cause the pet to be sicker or lose quality of life. And, and that's where I guard my cancer patients to have gentler, kinder cancer care. And that would always be uh, mindful of causing no side effects uh, and very, very uh, okay with what other compromised organs they may have, like if the pet has already got kidney disease or liver disease or heart disease, we don't want our treatments to be interfering with those other diseases that are competing for that pet's uh, quality of life and length length of life. But but what I've learned in in the pet cancer vet that's one of my shows on uh, Radio Pet Lady Network from Sue Ettinger is that n- very rarely, if never, 
is a cancer treatment given to a dog or a cat that does cause them discomfort, a good oncologist, and the way that PET, as I understand it, PET chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery is handled is to always protect quality of life and that what dogs and cats go through when they are given chemotherapy and the people choose to try it, it never results in the kind of devastation that we see in humans who are brought to the I, brink I, of death. I have to say that that's, that's, a, that's a, a viewpoint that is not shared by many really? recipients. Really? I'd have to say, yeah, I'm, I've been in this field for 40-some years and sure. I know that's some cancer patients are taken to an oncologist and they just pretty much plug the patient into the recipe, you wow. know, the protocol, wow. whether they're 13 years old and have conditions. And right. uh, there are, there's nothing, you can, you can never say never. And I want you to know that I personally uh, understand that, uh, that uh, in human medicine and in veterinary medicine, which unfortunately have paralleled each other, that many times quality of life is compromised. It's not our goal, but, but, but many times the patient, in my opinion, should not have been admitted to that protocol just because they had so many other comorbidities that were competing for that patient's um, quality of life and maybe even length of life. So I, end, I would never say much, never. And you don't buy much time with pets anyway. You buy months. Sometimes. Well, you know, that's, that's another problem. Um, if we look at, um, you know, they always say, look at evidence-based medicine. Uh, we can do radiation for your 15-year-old dog. But the only thing is, is that the, the evidence-based article they're talking about selected dogs or cats that were in perfect condition. Right. That they had no other comorbidities, that they were, you know, usually younger age. Right. And these patients are not the very patient that you have in your hands yes. and yes. you're holding. And so, you know, we, we, we just can't ever say never. And when right. I'm trying to help people who have a pet at the end of life and are looking at the fact, oh, he has arthritis, we've got, you know, we've got heart disease, we've got, uh, you know, he's overweight. We have to look at all these things as very... You know, I, I would say it involves a dilemma and a bioethical consideration regarding decision making, analysis, and um, you know, presentation to the family. I've I've advised against certain procedures to some of my patients, and they might have gone ahead, ahead you know, with it, and they passed on. Uh, they died during treatment yes. or after treatment, and I've had that myself. You know, I've, there's just too much risk for these older critters. And um, and it doesn't I'm, give them a good quality of their last days, weeks, or months. And it causes a great deal of anxiety and emotional and financial expenditure by their people. Sometimes, maybe, you know, yeah, sometimes. I'm, I'm just saying it's, it's, you know, when you said never causes a problem, wrong. And then, you know, the idea of we just have to find the right treatment for the right patient. And that's what I'm saying is personalizing Right. The protocol, instead of sticking the animal into the recipe, we put the patient as an individual and then adapt a kinder, gentler uh, approach to this uh, patient. Well, you certainly, uh, you you have traveled the world and been all across the country speaking and, and giving presentations and being part of uh, care and changes in care. So you've seen a lot more boots on the ground than I ever will. And I guess when I'm working with an oncologist who works in Westchester County and is a very mindful person and often 
says to people, come see the oncologist so I can talk you out of doing anything when their own vet might think they're meant to leap into something. I guess I'm sort of living in a rarefied bubble, if you will, of someone who (laughs) who chooses exactly what you would say, to never do anything that would make the, the pet uncomfortable or sick if they aren't sick now or more sick or uncomfortable if they already are, only if it's something which is sort of benign in the reaction. But I guess the end-of-life decision, that bond you're speaking about, is that people seem to think in some desperate way that they're going to pull a rabbit out of a hat and some miracle is going to happen, even if they put the pet through a whole bunch of medical stuff. If the pet's already old and has other illness, wouldn't it be better to do a dignified winding down of life that doesn't involve a whole lot of poking and prodding, right? Well, you know, I I want you to know that I'm looking at it from all the different viewpoints, and that gives us more wisdom. And, you know, from as many perspectives as possible. And, you know, right now we have wonderful new technology, so we can image the patient. Uh, but I often worry, well, if he has to be anesthetized for that imaging procedure like a CT or an MR, right, right. what is the next step? Maybe we don't need to do anesthesia if we aren't going to do the procedure that would Correct. be indicated, yes. et cetera. And like in the old days, we, we knew how to diagnose brain tumors without an MRI, but nowadays the doctor immediately wants that. But if you're, if you're the owner and you're not going to do brain surgery, then why would you do the MRI under anesthesia? Absolutely you know? right. See, so we try to make sure that one hand in glove, you know, one fits upon the other. And I'm totally uh, uh, for uh, removing brain tumors if they're superficial. And the fact is, is that, you know, some of them are and some of them aren't. But we can kind of tell from the physical exam and if we know the patient, the family is not going to do surgery no matter what, then why would we do the MRI? And and as you point out, it really is in a lockstep with human medicine because I have a 95-year-old father-in-law and his memory seemed to be slipping dramatically. Well, it turned out he had stopped taking thyroid medication for weeks, maybe even months. So that has a huge effect on memory. But... There seemed to be just this precipitous drop, so off he goes with my husband to the doctor, who rather than saying, wow, this thyroid level is really low, which he said, and let's get him on that thyroxine right away, says, well, it might have been a mini stroke. We better get an MRI. Well, hang on. There's another reason, and this this kind of thinking bleeds over into pet care. Why would you do an MRI? What good would it do anyway? He's 95 years old. What are you going to do with that information? Why would you put him through it? And cost the taxpayer, basically, because, right, Medicare, I mean, at a certain age, it's this sort of, because we have equipment, we're going to use it, just sort of forge ahead without a plan. And what if, well, what, there you what go. good will the information you know, do? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely, um, your point is well taken. Um, and I think that you're t- talking about looking at the whole patient and often, uh, you know, just trying to help make common sense be prevailing. And... Um, you know, we're, we're, we're right now at the point where we have some new, wonderful, gentle, kinder treatments that we can give to some of the old patients. Um, and um, I'm seeing some, re, you know, literal remissions that I have never seen before. Wow. I've been able to clear lung cancer from, um, you know, like osteosarcoma in the lungs that look like a snowstorm. I, I cleared a hemangiosarcoma dog of the cancer in the lungs. Because we are now using some targeted treatments that are gentle on the body, and uh, and we can also combine them with that continuous low dose treatment called metronomic therapy. Right. And and I I kind of you know I want to treat the disease. I'm not ignoring right. the fact that the patient right. has cancer, for instance, but we can use 
kinder, gentler treatment that actually shows responses. And, you know, if we can slow down a tumor, I'm, I'm not saying we're going to jump in there and cure. We're, that's, that's out of the question many times because animals, you know, they, how they hide their signs. Sure, so we don't course. even know that they have cancer until it's quite advanced. That's right. But if we can use the metronomic therapy, which is the, you know, it's the, the, the remember the, the little timer on the piano? Sure. You know, that's called a metronome, tick-tock, tick-tock. Well, that's the concept of calling it metronomic chemotherapy, but it's a continuous low-dose treatment chemo that slows down the formation of new blood vessels in the tumor and this process, uh, you know, slows down the spread of tumors, even their growth. And so uh, it's called anti-angiogenesis therapy. And, you know, if you have a dog or a cat that has a, a cancer that, you know, was growing fast and you can just slow it down and he's still well, that's ideal. And there's yes. no adverse events. You know, we don't have vomiting. We don't have diarrhea. We don't have loss of appetite. And then I also use my immunonutrition program to help enhance the patient's immune system because so many times, you know, pets don't have the nutrients that are well known that that can make a difference. But, you know, the the big difference today right now, Tracy, as you know, as opposed to 10 or 15, 20 years ago, it's it's not the technology. It's the attitude that people have for their pets. You know, we're proud now to have an old animal. We've got the little strollers. You know, people aren't just disposing of their pets um, because they've got arthritis and and they're losing hearing and sight. You know, yes, there's a substrate of people that will dump their old dogs at the pound. I mean, we know that. But most pet owners who love their pet and has been a part of the family, they just sort of adapt to the pet's uh, minuses. And they'll, you know, we we like we don't take our 12-year-old uh, old English bulldog out for the big long walks anymore. He he goes around the block and he enjoys it. Neo, you know Neo. Yes, of course. You, we have pictures of, of you with Neo yeah. on the website. Well, we've run out of time, Alice, but I think really the message to people is that you have to individualize what you're doing, see what exactly. your pet's got going on. And it seems like a second opinion is more valuable here than ever because no matter what you're, you feel you're being geared towards or, or pushed towards or suggested towards, you probably another point of view would be helpful because that way you can come up with your your own best decision for your individual pet. And that's the yeah. important part is to not just be, um, you know, part of a of a machinery, but but make decisions for yourself. Right. I Thank call it the for... mindless machinery of medicine. And yes. You don't want to get into that grind. That is so true. Well said. <laughs> and in, and the humans as well. I mean, you know, you, Big don't, time. you can just step back and go, no, thank you. I don't need an MRI, an X-ray, a CT. Uh, we're just going to figure this out calmly because all this equipment sometimes gets in the way of, of really feeling and thinking. Thank you so much, Dr. Alice, for all You're your wisdom welcome, and all your, sure. your wonderful attitudes towards pets. It helps us all a lot. Have a great day. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are also supported by the pheromone products Feel Away for Cats and Adaptil for Dogs. Pheromones are chemical communicators that are a natural signal of comfort in your pet's brain. Feel Away and Adaptil Spray, Plug-in Diffusers, and the new Wipes are stress relievers that can help with anxiety or behavior issues. They can reduce problems in a multi-cat household and can help adopted pets make the adjustment to their new homes. Adaptil collars are available from veterinarians and can help dogs with anxiety from separation, thunderstorms, or travel. I am here with Becky Miller, who's an instructor at Canine Companions for Independence, people we've heard from from various points of view, 
who helps take these puppies that have been raised by puppy raisers and see if they're going to truly be a canine companion or not. Becky, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. One of the things that absolutely fascinates me personally, and therefore I have to think it it interests my listeners because we're we're all one, dog lovers, people lovers. We've had a number of people on the show. We had Stan Yoakum, who's one of your puppy raisers. Mm -hmm. We've had people who are recipients of a canine companion for independence dog and how that dog helps them in their life. And one of the things that I'm curious about, two things. One is, what do you guys do with these 14, 16, 18-month-old puppies when they come to to you for that it isn't even fine tuning it's the real putting them together as a as a real companion a, a functioning working dog and why do so many of them more than half and this wouldn't just be your dogs it would be guide dogs for the blind seeing eye dogs lots of dogs why do more than half of them flunk i know you guys say <laughs> career change but let's be honest you have put so much time and energy and money into breeding dogs of great health and wisdom and 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 balanced and and smart and they've been raised by people who've put, given their guts out right 18 months to love this puppy and take it everywhere in the world and and you're a good instructor and so are your others and so you want to teach the dog how to open the refrigerator door or do the thing with the wheelchair or help with the wash how come half of them it doesn't work out i there's something about this that just boggles my mind. So much love has gone into making this happen and only half of them can cut it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, it, and it is, it's heartbreaking for everybody across the board. I can speak for my fellow instructors as well as, you know, having been a puppy raiser myself, I can kind of speak from all, yes. all angles of it. Yes. It is heartbreaking. It, uh, it is everybody. We all share the same goal of having these dogs go off to be these wonderful companion dogs and get to, you know, change somebody's life. Yes. Um, but when it comes down to it, dogs are dogs. And, you know, that, that is a really big piece of it. Um, I can tell you that I would say 90% of the dogs that don't make it through our program, it's definitely not for lack of skills. These dogs are very intelligent. Um, They love, you know, they love to play and we structure our work around play so much. We want to make sure that they enjoy their jobs. And these really are working dogs, but a lot of times they just don't have the temperament characteristics that will lend to being a working dog with the responsibility of performing these tasks in a public setting. All right. So explain that temperament part, because on the one hand, you're breeding for many things and temperament is definitely one of them. I mean, even people that are breeding dogs for slow, for show slash uh, pets, they at least will say I'm breeding for temperament. I want a a smart, but a well-balanced and, you know, not too reactive, not too aggressive, whatever they're breeding, Labrador retriever, let's say, just for home Mm -hmm. pleasure use. That's a big part of your goal. Is that something that it's extremely hard to breed for and you and you don't know what you've got until 18 months or 20 months old? Um, it, there's a lot of a lot of science and a lot of genetics and a lot of things that I don't completely understand, right, to be honest. Right. But um, somebody does, right? Because a lot of dogs, yeah. it's like the yeah. secret sauce of how you pick your dogs and how you breed them. And it's, everyone has their, their special little secrets, don't they? Even guide dogs and seeing eye dogs and pilot dogs. Everyone, oh, I can't talk about that. <laughs> it's the best kept secret out there. It is, it is. No, um, I mean, we do, we have, that is, that is part of the reason that we actually do breed our own dogs. We do get a lot of questions from people outside of our organization or just people in the, in the general community asking, well, why don't you use shelter dogs? And a big component of it is temperament. And with the, all of the breeding that we do, most, most of our breeding is 
definitely based on the physical characteristics of the dogs. So we do OFA hips and elbow, uh, OFA um, clearances on hips and elbows. We do pen hips on all of our dogs. We screen them for any kind of cardiac issues that they might have. We screen them, we screen their eyes. We want to make sure that these dogs are in top-notch health first and foremost. So what, and so once, explain about the OFA because not everybody knows that. Those of you that have bought from a breeder, you've bought a dog at ever in your life of a larger breed dog. So many of us have had dogs with ACL tears and hip dysplasia and elbow dysplasia. And this is what you're saying, Becky, is that these parents and grandparents and even the puppies themselves are shown by x-rays, not the puppies, but the parents and grandparents to have never had those problems. So they're passing on good, basically a good skeleton. Exactly. OFA stands for the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals. And basically what we do is we take certain, there are certain views, certain x-ray positions that we have to take for each of our dogs. And we send them to the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals and they give the dog a rating as to how how sound their hips and their elbows look and whether or not that is a predictor of potential hip dysplasia or disease or anything like that down the line. And so we make sure that the dogs that we are graduating from our program and and even more so the dogs that we are selecting to add to our breeding pool yes. have incredibly sound hips and elbows. And we're reducing the potential for any kind of issues as we do continue to breed them. Because so it would be a tragedy if you had a dog who at age three, four, five, or six, maybe they could work till eight or 10, they fall apart physically, and you've Absolutely. now taken away the vital extra limb, if you will, for the person mm-hmm. who depends on them for their independence. One of the things I'm curious about, and, and you may not know the answer to this because you get the dogs and you instruct them and you shape them and you're the finishing mm-hmm. school, but what about the early spay-neuter issue? Is that something that's come up at, K9, at CCI? Because the more that becomes discussed, the idea of spay-neuter at six months rather than 12 or 13 or 14 months has for a number of years been something that's been rumbled about. But now it's really coming up to the surface that that early spay-neuter is not good for the dogs, the large breed dog joints, and even for their personality, that it's better to let them go through puberty and not cut off their entire hormonal supply young. And since you can control things, I'm wondering what you guys are doing, or is that a secret too? Um, you know, to be honest, I, I don't know about kind of the the discussion that's going on between, or the, the debate right. that's going on between right. early spay and neuter. However, what I can say is our dogs, all of our dogs actually remain intact until they're all of the dogs that we're looking at for our breeding program, I should say. So all of our female dogs and any of our um, purebred Labradors, male Labradors or purebred golden retrievers, male golden retrievers, um, if they are a purebred dog or if they are a female dog, they will remain intact until they turn in for professional training. So as you mentioned before, we have puppy raisers that have them for the first 18 to 20 months of their life, and then they turn into myself and my my fellow instructors and apprentice oh, instructors. So, so they do get dogs, to, to remain intact until you guys get your hands on them. They do, yes. That's awesome. Well, you um, know, so our dogs are spayed and neutered at a much oh, older much age like- compared to the the general population. Wow. Well, they're very lucky. And so are the people that get them from, from everything I've been learning over the, over the, the years, not just months, but over the years. And it's ironic because it's one of the most important things in your breeding program and you do all this testing, but it may also be the fact of that delayed spade and neuter. That's very predictive of the dogs remaining really sound, not going lame, not having joint problems. So that's sure. that's one of those interesting ironies. So the, the dog comes to you here. He is 18 or 20 months old. 
and has been exposed to every imaginable sound, place, thing. Absolutely. Like, we know that. <laughs> and that's kind of cool. And a lot of us would love to be able to take our dogs into every movie theater and every restaurant and every shopping mall. But then we would be heartbroken, as you probably were giving up your puppies when you raised <laughs> them. I mean, we understand going to a really someone who needs them more than we do, but it must be hard. What it's is never it that, easy. It's <laughs> never easy. What is it that you do in the – is it a six-week or a six-month period that you have them? I personally have the dogs for between six and nine months. Wow. So at that point, is that when you using play and positive reinforcement, isn't this fun, you teach them specific tasks that would be specific to an individual you already know about, whether they're wheelchair bound or crutches or some other disability, or is it generally you teach them a whole lot of skills and then it gets broken down when they get paired with somebody? It's kind of a combination of both, actually. So all of the dogs that come to us have a general foundation of skills. So the puppy raisers put a general foundation of about 20 commands on the dogs, 20 to 25 commands. That's a commands, lot. Like, which is a lot, say, yes. It's a lot more than my dogs have ever known. <laughs> and a lot of them are positional commands. So okay. and, you know things like asking the dog to sit on my left side versus sitting on oh. my right side or going underneath a table and laying down or jumping up on top of a bench or things like that, okay. um, as well as the basic obedience commands, sit down here, stay, those types of things. Okay. Once the puppy raisers have put that incredibly invaluable yes. um, foundation on the dogs and they turn into us, we take over and we train total about 45 commands, um, including the ones that the puppy raisers have already trained. We just kind of polish those up. Right. Um, and we train the dogs specifically to do the advanced commands. So things like turning on and off light switches, opening doors, retrieving items off the floor. Um, some of our dogs are trained to pull a manual wheelchair. So they'll wear a harness that somebody can wow. hold on to if their upper body fatigues, which wow. again is why their their physical structure has to be so sound. We can't have a dog that has hip or elbow problems being asked to That's pull a wheelchair. That's fascinating. And a lot of people cannot afford an electric wheelchair. Many of us don't realize that. I had a wonderful little boy on the show. Um, I don't know if you heard of the book Hachi and Little Bee. I've got to send you a copy of this book. You'll just adore it. Little boy born with a, a very severe genetic um, deformity and a dog that was tied to a railroad track in England, an Anatolian shepherd. And the, mm. the train ran over it, one of its back legs and its tail. Oh and the gosh. two of them kind of healed together and bonded together. But they had to take up a huge collection for 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 the child to get an electric wheelchair. I mean, you don't just mm-hmm. get one, right? So if you don't have the upper body strength, I never thought about it, to make the wheels of your wheelchair go around or you tire, that dog becomes really your legs. Yeah, specifically with our organization, just with the the training that we do for that specific command, um, it's used to be kind of a power assist. So somebody does have to be able to propel their wheelchair independently. It's more for something like crossing a long parking lot or a little bit of a help going up a not very steep grade. Got it. Got it. We don't notice that parking lots are graded (laughs) when we're walking across them. That's right. But trust me, from my experience of training and not being a regular wheelchair user and not having those muscles developed, um, parking lots can be very tricky to maneuver sometimes. So so that's another another piece of, of training that you put on them. That that is one of the skills, yes. Okay, so now in in the six to nine months, we're at three months. Mm -hmm. How soon do you see signs in more than half of the dogs that they are not going to be able to to cut it? And I guess some of it has to do, does it have to do with paying attention and not being distractible? 
there's there's a lot of factors that go into it. Basically, what I like to say is we are essentially training these dogs not to be dogs anymore. Um, you know, they they still have the yeah. emotional the emotional quality of being a dog and they still have that connectability and that relatability and that work ethic. But we're also asking them to basically ignore everything that's going on in the external environment and focus on their handler. And that is really difficult, particularly with the breeds that we use, you know, labs and goldens, they're interested in their environment. They were bred to be hunting dogs. And so they see birds and squirrels and fast moving small critters. And generally speaking, those types of dogs want to chase those types of yes, critters. Yes, it's in their DNA, let's say. Exactly. You can't and breed so part away of, from that. Exactly. So part of our breeding program is making sure that we're breeding out as much of the, um, the prey drive and chase drive as we can while still breeding in a strong work ethic. So wow. we want a dog that can be responsive to commands. Verbally responsive is ideal. Um, We also want a dog that is not going to be a lot of management for somebody who has mobility challenges. If they have um, range of motion difficulties or if they don't have the strength to be able to manage a large dog, we want to make sure that the dog is going to be as low management for them as possible. Um, We do control our dogs with a leash and collar. And so we want to make sure that the dogs are going to be responsive to a minimal collar correction. We do use a combination of positive reinforcement and correction in our training. So we want to make sure that the dog can be responsive to a correction, but it's not going to be a correction that you and I who is able-bodied. Exactly. It has to be sensitivity when the person goes, "Uh uh-uh, that the dog's Uh like, oh, I'm awfully sorry, which discussed recently on on my training show, Good Dogs, that, Mm -hmm. that a, a softer dog, a more responsive dog, You all you have to do is go, ah, and that dog's like, okay, <laughs> Some I didn't of the really... dogs, Absolutely. Some of the dogs will respond yeah. to that. Yeah. And I think the biggest component is is the responsibility piece of it. Right. Um, a lot of these dogs are very well-trained, very well-behaved dogs, but when you take them out into the farmer's market, you know, for example, <laughs> and it's, there's one thing to, it's one thing to ask the dog to just walk through the farmer's market and ignore all of the things that are going on there. Yes. It's another thing to go through the farmer's market and drop my keys and have the dog not only ignore everything else that's going on, but also have to pick up my keys and deliver them to me reliably. Wow. So that is a lot of responsibility that we put on these animals. So that's why I would say a big percentage of our dogs don't make it through the program because it's a lot of pressure that we're asking of them. And I am a firm believer in, you know, not to anthropomorphize, but I I truly do believe that our dogs kind of decide whether or not they want to be a working dog and they have the aptitude or they don't have the aptitude, no matter what, what qualities we breed for, um, the dogs are going to show an aptitude for this working role or they're not. And if they are uncomfortable in any kind of situation, if they're startled by loud noises or if they get fearful riding in cars or things like that, it's not fair for us to put the responsibility of having to have a working role on top of that. So really that dog may never have shown that as a puppy with a puppy razor. It's only when the pressure comes on and you're asking a lot of other tasks and there's a lot of more distractions that you begin, and that's why it takes so long to discover this. Absolutely. So that really, that explains it. So it's sort of like a kid who's cramming for a test and you can have, they're all bright and they're all in the, you know, gifted group, Mm -hmm. but there's some who in the test situation just kind of like zone out 
or yeah. they cry or they, they just don't want to do it. And others go, give it to me. I want to, I want to rise to the this. occasion. <laughs> yeah. And I guess from that point of view to anthropomorphize, there's some who can embrace the challenge and others who it just, it's a tipping point, like how much mm-hmm. of that pressure they can handle. Absolutely. And of course you're never going to, just because you put all the time and money and energy and love into them, you're not going to put them in a position or the person who receives them where that dog could break down. With only a couple of minutes left, Becky, do they, all those beautifully raised and trained by all of you dogs, do any of them go on to serve some higher purpose other than just some lucky puppy raiser gets them back <laughs> as a fabulous pet forever? Absolutely. Um, I ideally actually, you know, these are dogs, like I said in the beginning, are born and bred to work. They they enjoy working and a lot of them do really enjoy having a working role. We work very closely with a lot of other organizations, whether it be guide dog organizations. So if we have a dog that's a little bit too independent or a little bit too um, you know, spunky and, and I guess independent is the word, um, where the dog likes to make its own decisions it might not work for one of our clients because right. it might be too difficult for them to manage, but it would make right. a fabulous guide dog or a search and rescue dog. Yes. Or we do a lot of work actually with police departments who nice. use our dogs for drug detection Love or it. for search Love dogs it. or things like that. That's really cool. Yeah. So we try and place them in other organizations to really utilize those aptitudes that they have and really, you know, make them be successful in whatever role we can find for them. That's Otherwise, right. then they get uh, to go home and be yes. fabulous pet dogs. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it seems like, yes, the guide dog groups, they, they put in those same two years of and, and the previous generations of breeding into their dogs and some of their dogs can't do those jobs. Mm-hmm. So how great if, if any of your overflow could go to someone and give them sight. I mean, one of my wonderful listeners, Gil Lutz, he's He's a, he's in his seventies, but he you know he goes on the public transportation. He walks everywhere. And he's a big, strong man. They give him a big, strong Labrador Retriever. One of your dogs that is too much dog, as you say, for someone who's wheelchair bound would be awesome for someone Absolutely. a younger guy or a big, strong gal or whatever it is mm-hmm. to just go out. Someone who's on the move a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. So that's wonderful to know. How great that you can all work together. Becky, thanks for all you guys are doing at Canine Companions for Independence. It's really heartwarming. And to all the puppy raisers, you included, you are the most generous giving, generous giving people in the whole world to give all that time and energy and love to these puppies and then give them up to the world. It's it's really amazing. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Anything anything new that happens on your horizon, I'll we'll want to know about it because it's really really interesting what you guys do. We'd we'd love. I don't know if you can ever share like a videotape, a YouTube tape of some of the training you do. I don't know if oh, you I'm ever sure share we that. Can. <laughs> I would love to be able to post that on my Facebook page. I'd love to see how you teach some of these things. Just I think we'd all be fascinated how you take a dog that already knows 20 things and teach them another 20. Just be really cool to see you guys at work. So I'll, I'll email you and see if you can share something without giving Absolutely. away without giving away the trade secrets. <laughs> Have a great day, Becky. Thanks for all you do. Take Thank care. Thank you. You Bye-bye. too. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches. And we will talk again next week. Bye for now.